Hey, would the rest of you open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4? And we're, we're back in our, our Hebrew series after taking a little break for Palm Sunday and for Easter. Um, and just to give you a little bit of context, uh, chapter 3 and 4 basically have had the author of Hebrews saying, look, there's this sort of not great example of the first generation that left Egypt on their way to the promised land, to Canaan, but they didn't make it because uh, they didn't believe, they didn't unite by faith uh, with God who was with them. Uh, they thought their salvation was, was a destination rather than a relationship uh, with, with the God who had saved them. So in, in that context, you know, you've got what we're looking at this morning, which is verses uh, 9 through 16, uh, you, you hear the author continue to address the heart. Don't harden your heart, uh, and, and let's pay attention to God's word. So let's stand in honor of that word, and I'm going to begin in verse 9. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Lord, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for the way that it uh, teaches us and corrects us and ultimately how it shows us Jesus, uh, the true word, our, our advocate who speaks words of salvation and promise and rest to us. In his name we pray, amen. Please be seated. Um, so, so this is really about how Jesus is the greater word that, that God has spoken to us. Uh, this book of Hebrews begins by talking about how uh, God you know, spoke to us originally through the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us through the Son, and the Son is, is the word incarnate. Uh, so we're going to talk about this word that calls us to rest. That's the the continual you know, rhythm of Scripture is God calling us into a restful relationship with Him. And that that word is living uh, and active. It's like a, a sword, a very, very sharp sword that, that exposes and, um, and, and sees into our hearts. And that this word also is our salvation because it became flesh for us and, and walked with us and saved us. So let's start with with the word that calls us to rest. And so this will be a little bit of review from about three weeks ago, but, but, but that's what we see in verses 9 and 10 and 11, that the word is calling us to rest and to resist. 
It's calling us to do both of those things. God invites us to enter his rest. Um, There remains the Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has rested from his works as God did from his. Um, It's an allusion not just to the, the, the first generation that left Egypt trying to enter the rest of Canaan. Now, this goes back even further to Genesis 1 and 2. And God creating all things, you know, there's these six days and the cycle of days, this rhythm of there is evening and there is morning, the, the, this day and the next day and the next day. And then you get to the seventh day and the seventh day never stops. God rests from his original creation and, the, and that rest continues for an eternity and the gospel is an invitation to join God in his rest, his eternal rest. And, and this is what uh, the first generation of God's people who, as we said, left Egypt, they didn't enter that rest because they, they missed the core reality of that rest that it, they thought they were under the false impression that that rest was a destination. They thought it was on the other side of the river in Canaan and they missed the reality that rest was with them and that rest could be found in a relationship with him. And that's really good news for us. This word is inviting us into that same kind of rest, the rest that is found in a relationship with the God who is with us, the God who, who, who can turn a wilderness into an oasis if we're in relationship with him, if we know his blessing, if we know the reality of living in a love relationship with him. That turns a wilderness into an oasis. And you know what happens to those that don't have that relationship with him? They can live in an oasis and and it'll feel like a wilderness because they don't have that connection with their creator, with their redeemer, with the one who loves them and gave himself for them. And so, you know, the example that Hebrews mentions of that rest is focused on having a relationship with God, not just being focused on a destination. Like even today, the focus that we have is not so much on going to heaven when we die, as wonderful as that's going to be. No, the real eternal life, eternal life is this, that they may know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It's a relationship with God who loves us, right? So this is the rest that Jesus promises us. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. God's word calls us to rest. And it calls us to resist. It calls us to to rest in Christ and to resist uh, the way that the world is saying that we find rest, which is working hard and then you work hard, then you've earned a weekend to kick back and to relax or We work really, really hard to impress people so that they think well of us. We've got this identity based on people's approval and that identity is shattered when they disapprove of us and all these different ways that the world looks for rest. And the gospel, God's word, calls us to resist that. Instead, in verse 11, it says, therefore, let us strive to enter that rest, which sounds like an oxymoron, right? But it's not, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Um, we're, We're looking to enter that rest by striving against a false rest, a false identity, a false security, the the things that the world is resting in. That's not going to give you real rest. 
Because that's just dependent on people's opinions of you. That's just dependent on, on your up and down behavior and performance from day to day or week to week. And that's going to leave you exhausted. And there's no real rest there. In verse uh, 1 of chapter 4, Hebrews gives us you know, these continual uh, blessed uh, warnings or, or caution signs. You know, those caution signs we see along the roads are actually for our good. They're not meant to ruin your day. They're meant to tell you slow down or, hey, pay attention. There's a sharp turn ahead or whatever. And Hebrews gives us these things that we just sang about, like praise the God whose threats alarm thee and rouse thee from my fatal ease. Like I need to be woken up with some strong smelling salts. The smelling salts for our soul, and you get one of these in verse 1 of chapter 4. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Resist the way the world fails to reach God's rest. Richard Baxter, Puritan pastor, said, Heaven will pay for any loss we may suffer to gain it, but nothing can pay for the loss of heaven. We must not lose this. You you and I are, are free from the way the world tries to find its worth in its work. We rest in the worth of Jesus and his work for us. So that's, that's what we're striving against, right? So the word is calling us uh, to enter that rest, uh, to, 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 to resist the way the world is, uh, is saying that we get salvation. Instead, it's in, it's in Christ alone. And then you go on and, and you get this whole language about <clears throat> verse 12 and following about God's word. And, I, and I'll just confess to you, Like for the longest time, when I would read Hebrews and I'd get to this section, I didn't understand what's this sort of seeming tangent about God's word. And we get to verse 12, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joint and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I remember memorizing those verses, and that's a great memory verse, and it tells you a lot about how we should esteem God's word, but it sort of does, it, it didn't make immediate sense to me in the flow of this discussion about entering God's rest and believing in Jesus, right? Well, no, it does make sense. Because what it tells us about God's word is that it discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Because, you know, for the past two chapters in Hebrews, the refrain has been, Don't harden your heart. Psalm 95, don't harden your heart. Don't harden your heart. Don't harden your heart again and again and again. Soften your heart. Be in relationship with the God who loves you, who made you, who's rescuing you. And and don't confuse the rest, you know, with the destination versus a relationship with him. Don't harden your heart. And here you get this whole discussion about how the word of God discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart and it can tell us whether or not our heart is hard or whether our heart is where it needs to be in relationship with God. So we ought to pay attention to to the role of the Word of God. The Word is discerning and it's exposing. And this this is the role that God's Word has 
in our lives. So if, if we don't expose ourselves to this word, if we're not like, you know, here listening to the, to, to the word being preached, then that's, that's going to do damage to our soul. If we're not reading this ourselves, like on a daily basis, just opening God's word, and we've got a reading schedule on the back of your outline in the bulletin every single week. If you need help, like just read along. But, but expose yourself. I, I need this, you need this. We need God's word to discern and to expose what's going on in our hearts. And, and, and for starters, let me just say how powerful this word is. Like in Jeremiah, there's this kind of, I've got this, this verse uh, stuck on a little post-it note on my, my, uh, my, my uh, laptop. When I'm, so when I'm, when I'm preparing you know, sermons and stuff, I can remember that, that God's word is like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. It's like fire, uh, declares the Lord. And so you get this powerful image of, of God's word. And then in, you know, here in Hebrews, you get another you know, image. It's not my word like a double-edged sword. God's word like a hammer, it's like fire, it's like a sword. And, and I've probably said this before, so forgive me for being redundant, but you, you all know, right? I don't know, there's no nothing new I'm sharing with you, that that old adage that we used to teach our kids that word, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. You, you know that's, that's a lie, right? I mean, we, we know how foolish that, that is to say. Because words are incredibly powerful. Words have power to build up and they have power to tear down. And and, and, and you and I know this. We know that they have the ability to just, like a double-edged sword, just cut right through our defenses like a hammer, just break down that, that wall that we've built up with, with rocks and concrete, you know, to, to try to wall us off from the places where we feel vulnerable or to build up, you know, some kind of image that we want people to see about us and, and words just break right through that. Like a double-edged sword, they can cut right through, you know, the places where we want to hide. We know this is true. We know how powerful words are because when somebody wants to hurt us, it only takes one word to tell us that, you know, you're trash and then we're, we're, we're undone. Or this, is, this can happen in, in beautiful ways. It just takes one word for your lover to tell you that you're wonderful and they've made your day. It, it, it can cut either way. That's how powerful words are. And God's words are the most powerful of all. So what do God's words do? Well, they expose, right? That's what verse 13 tells us. That no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Uh, God's words expose what we try to hide. Like we build up those walls, we build up those facades, and, and God's words, like an x-ray, just see right through it. Uh, it confronts us with the truth that, you know, um, on our best days, there's, there's a fraud and a failure underneath all of that good stuff. And on our worst days, the fraud and failure is plain to see. That's what God's word does. It exposes that. And God's word corrects the, the, you know, the places where we're just wrong. The Bible doesn't affirm all of our uh, grand illusions about what we think is true and my truth versus your truth. No, it's God's truth. 
And he's going to tell us what's right and what's wrong. And, and it's our job to say yes and amen to that instead of, well, but, you know, um, God's word just exposes that. And God's word condemns those who rebel against him. It doesn't stutter. It doesn't stammer. It doesn't blink. It just says very plainly that his kingdom is what's coming. His will is what will be done. And if you're not on board with his kingdom and his will, there are consequences. There is an accountability for that. And God's word calls every creature under heaven to cooperate with his kingdom, to, to, to you know, turn away from our own efforts to get glory and to pursue his glory. Um, one of the commentators I've been following through this series in Hebrews is Bill Lane, and he just sums it up. The surveillance predicated of God is exhaustive. It's all-encompassing. Nothing escapes his scrutiny. So let me just, you know, ask you, in light of, in light of God's word, um, how should we respond? <clears throat> to the reality that God's word is discerning and exposing. What's the natural reaction to this? Well, it's the same reaction that any of us have when we feel exposed. If you're in the bathroom and somebody, you know, throws the door open, they don't knock first, you know, you're like, wait a minute, somebody's in. That's how we respond. And that's exactly how we should respond to God's word left to ourselves. And another one of these gracious, you know, warnings and caution signs in Hebrews is in chapter 10 where it says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Do we believe that? Isn't it tempting, isn't it easy to just kind of come in on, on a regular basis into church and you know, hear the songs and hear the sermon and just go, you know, I'm, I'm so thankful to be here and, the, and I, I like my church and I, I, I love Jesus and I love the gospel. Isn't it easy to kind of come in here week in, week out and just kind of become a little bit numb to the reality of a holy God whose word discerns everything about us and who exposes everything that we try to hide? What should our reaction be left to ourselves? We should be a little bit scared, I think. To, to be honest, this is terrifying to think that, there's a, that this word is what can, can expose everything that we try to hide. It corrects everything that we've got wrong. It condemns everything against his kingdom. And here we come in to his presence and we're like, hey, it's nice to be here. <laughs> And, and, and the way that our mothers and fathers used to describe it is sometimes we just fall into playing church. And we forget that when we come into this, this environment, when we come in to worship God, when we're called to worship by the living God, we're playing with fire. He's the living God of the universe. He's going to hold us accountable for every thought, word, and deed in our lives. We're going to stand before him. And his word's going to expose everything in our heart, every thought in our head, every deed we've ever done, everything we should have done that we didn't do. 
we want to tread lightly through that? In Revelation 6, when the sixth seal is open, this is the right reaction to that kind of exposure. The kings of the earth, the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Left to ourselves, that's a right reaction. I need to hide from that kind of exposure. But like a, an honest oncologist, God's word exposes what's wrong with us, you know, the, 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 the mortal disease in our soul, the sickness of our soul. And he says, look, your hope is not in a recovery. God says your hope is in the resurrection. God says our hope is in a Savior who would come, who would be the word made flesh to come and speak a better word than the word of judgment that they heard at Sinai that we hear, the, you know, the law exposes and condemns and corrects. And so this is why uh, I love how Annie Dillard, who wrote um, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, she wrote another book called Teaching a Stone to Talk. And she says, God, I'm sorry I ran from you. And I'm still running, running from that knowledge that I that discerning eye, right? That all-seeing eye. That love from which there is no refuge. For you meant only love, and I felt only fear and pain. So once in Israel, love came to us incarnate. It stood in the doorway between two worlds, but we were all afraid. And that love that came incarnate is God's word also. The word made flesh, the word that calls us to hold fast and to draw near. In verse 14, we've got this great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to him. Let us draw near to him. He is uh, the one that we confess. We're supposed to hold fast to our confession, and our confession are our words, right? This is what we believe, and we say our creed and our confession of faith and so on. And so those, we're supposed to hold fast to our words about the Word, about Jesus, the, the Word incarnate, the, the Word who speaks words as our advocate in our defense, right? We're, we're, we're to hold fast our words about the Word who speaks words to defend us to pardon us, to, to, to declare us not guilty. And, and, and so this is why it's so beautiful that Hebrews begins by talking about how in these last days he's spoken to us. The, the words that he gives us are about his son who became flesh and who showed us his glory full of grace and truth. Not just truth without grace and not just grace without truth, but full of grace 
and truth. And so when we say our, our creed, for instance, the Apostles' Creed, which our fathers and mothers have been saying for centuries, we say that, we, that he ascended into heaven and he's seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, and from there he's going to come to judge the living and the dead. That's our creed. That's our confession, right? Well, that comes, you know, straight out of 1 John 2.1, uh, that we've got this advocate with the Father. Uh, that Jesus Christ the righteous, that it comes to us from, from, um, from Hebrews chapter 1 too, where after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty uh, on high. So, so when we say the creed, we're holding fast to this confession of the one who came full of grace and truth and who ascended on high and is seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us, advocating for us. And we talked last, um, or previously, about being lost in our advocate. How Jesus is our righteousness, right? We're not going to cover that ground again. But not just the Heidelberg, or not just the Apostles' Creed, but the Heidelberg Catechism this morning gives us, sheds a lot of light on what do we believe. It asks, how does Christ's ascension to heaven benefit us? We say these words, but how do they matter? Well, first, he's our advocate in heaven in the presence of his Father, saying words of blessing and pardon and salvation to us. And then the second reason, listen to this. If you even have your bullets and open, look at these words in that Heidelberg Catechism. It says, second, we have our own flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that Christ, our head, will also take us, his members, up to himself, that he's this pledge uh, that we have our own flesh in heaven. And this is one of the most um, startling things about the incarnation that uh, I know we all understand at Christmas that we celebrate God becoming flesh and walking among us, our Emmanuel, right? We sing about that and and we we sort of have, have latched on to that. That's good. But do you know that's only half of the miracle, the incarnation? The the, the miracle is that, you know, certainly God came and took on our flesh and we had God on earth in the flesh. But that's half of what happened. Because when Jesus ascended, he didn't leave his incarnate body behind. He didn't leave our flesh behind through his ascension. Our flesh is in heaven. God in the flesh is in heaven. That means that as our head and we, his body, he is our body in heaven. That guarantees just as surely as he is in heaven, we will be also. That's the miracle of the incarnation. We have our own flesh in heaven. Um, Do you all remember, some of you I think here are old enough to recall when, when you could fly uh, in an airplane, and if you had kids with you, uh, you could send your, you know, cute little John, your cute little Susie, scampering up the aisle of the airplane, and they could go, you know, knock on the, the, the cockpit door, and this nice man in his, you know, pilot suit would open the door and let little Johnny and let little Susie in, and they would show them the cockpit and all the buttons and the dials and give them a little tour and say, well, what do you want to be when you grow up? You want to be a pilot too? Yeah, this is great. And then give them a little pen, you know, their wings. 
They stick the pin or sticker, and then, and then they go back to the sheet, and then you, you talk to your little boy or little girl about, do you want to be a pilot? Isn't that cool? And then September 11th happened. And all the world got to see uh, the capacity for evil that's in our hearts. And after September 11th, the, the way was shut into that cockpit. And it's locked and it's barred and you can't go in there anymore. There was a a memo um, that came out from the FAA on January 11th, 2002. It says the FAA set new standards for cockpit doors. Uh, today, the FAA published new standards to protect cockpits from intrusion and small arms fire or fragmentation devices such as grenades. And the Aviation and Transportation Security Act authorizes the FAA to issue today's final rule that requires operators of more than 6,000 airplanes to install reinforced doors by April 9th, 2003. So that's now the reality, right? We can't go in there. Now imagine you're on a flight, and instead of sending your little boy or little girl up to visit the pilot in the cockpit, you're there, and you're sitting and sweating through a transatlantic flight, and it's a terrible, terrible storm. You know, the, the turbulence starts and they, they light up the fasten the seatbelt sign, the drink cart gets put away, and everybody's kind of starting to white knuckle it. And then the real fun begins. The pitching and the rolling and the up and the down. And what was, you know, before a cabin full of people just chatting and enjoying themselves and watching their movies, all of that has changed and shifted to silent prayers. And you can see the tears, and you can see the fears, and some of your palms are sweating already. Uh, how would you feel in that moment? How would you respond? Well, of course, you're expecting, you know, that voice on the intercom. This is your captain speaking, you know. Um, just want to reassure you, we've got everything under control. We're going to be fine. Uh, even though, you know, the lightning has hit the plane, even though the lights have flickered, he's telling you it's going to be okay. And you can sort of see the effect on everybody else. They're, they're, they're thankful for the reassurance. But that message for you means something really, really special. Because that's not just the voice of the pilot. That's the voice of your dad. A decorated Navy pilot with 20 years of commercial airline and, uh, um, uh, experience. And you know you know his qualifications. You know his heart for you. You know he's going to get this plane on the ground. Why? Because your own flesh is in that cabin. Your own flesh is in that cockpit, and he's going to get this plane down. He can save you, and he loves you. So the fact that we have our own flesh in heaven is this beautiful reassurance to us that he loves us, and he can save us. And we're not just exposed by God's word, we're reassured by the word, the one who came to us and who loves us. Verse 16 tells us, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Are you aware of your need for mercy? Do you know that you need grace? 
when we were talking about this passage at our staff meeting on Tuesday, Kyle's like, hey, you know, this is, this is tough stuff about God's word and how it exposes us and it, and it, and it corrects us and it condemns those who aren't. And I'm like, yeah, right? He's like, are you going to do the rest of the verses? Like, well, what verse? Well, verse 16, let us approach with confidence the throne of grace. Don't we need that? Like, yeah, that's a good idea. We should probably include those verses, right? So here we are. How in the world can we approach with confidence this throne if it's, if it's so terrifying to be exposed like that? Jesus is our high priest who has gone before us and who invites us to come. He's the word. He isn't separated. Like we don't want to pit God's uh, exposing word against Jesus the, 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 the high priest, because they're one and the same. Going back to verse 12, you know, we read the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Well, Jesus is the word. Jesus is living and active. Jesus is sharper than any two-edged sword. And, and Jesus pierces to the division of soul and spirit. Jesus discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Jesus knows everything about us. And he loves us. So in order not to like put this false dichotomy in place where there's the judgy God and then Jesus who saves us, no, they're one and the same. And I want to just read you from Revelation chapter 1, and we'll wrap up, where, where John turns to see the voice that was speaking to me. And then he sees this figure standing among the lampstands, and he's got a golden sash around his, uh, his waist, and a long robe, and his eyes are like a flame of fire. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. And from his mouth comes a sharp, two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. We talked earlier how God's word exposes what we try to hide, right? It corrects what we get wrong. It condemns those who are against his kingdom. So how should you and I respond in that moment? How should John respond with this vision of this person? John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. For I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive evermore. Jesus, our high priest, sacrificed himself. He died to bear our sin, and he rose again to bring us life in him. That's how we're united to him. That's how we experience the salvation that the word promises, because God's word, sure, it exposes, it corrects, it holds accountable, but it also promises mercy and grace to those who confess that they need it. It promises salvation, not destruction to those who confess Jesus as Lord. It says, fear not. And God's word reminds us of, of what we're so quick to forget. You're not your own. You're bought at a price. You're dear to him. You're his sheep and he's our shepherd and he loves us and he gave himself for us. This is also what God's word shares. We have our own flesh in heaven. Do you know how precious that is? That Jesus is our high priest who represents us. 
He didn't put aside the incarnation, but he's still not only fully God, but fully human. And he has said that we are members of his body. He's our head. Is he your head? Have you, have you bowed to him? Have you repented of your sin? Have you trusted him as, as your, your Lord and your King and your Savior? And are you governed by him? Does, does he call the shots in your life? I mean, no head, you know, a body can't function without the head. And the, and the head tells the body where to go. Is that your relationship with, with Jesus? Can it be described that way? And, and do you function with him? Are, are, are you a part of his mission you know, for his body to advance his kingdom? That's what it means to have him as your head. And if not, we just simply repent of our sins and confess him. Lord, I, I want to follow you. I want you to be my shepherd. I want you to be my head. I want to be a part of your body. I want to be a member of your body. And if you're a member of his body, that means... You're a part of his church. You're a part of his bride. He says his body is his bride, is his church. These are all interconnected, you know, illustrations. And, and Jesus said, I will build my church. That's his, that's his mission. He, he's building a church across time and across the nations. It's this uh, eternal, cosmic, um, beautiful organization that he gave himself for. And that's what he's doing and that's what his bride is, who he loves and he laid out his life for. So are you a member of that invisible, cosmic, beautiful, eternal body? His bride, his church. And I don't know. How do I know? How can, how can you be sure if you're a member of that? Well, there's some simple things. One of the most simple things is become a member of a local church. That's why we do membership at, at, at Tabernacle is when you get to hear the elders, the represent, Christ representatives on earth say, yeah, we hear your confession that you are holding fast to Jesus as your Savior, as your high priest, his righteousness, not yours, that gets you into heaven. When those elders say, yes, we believe you are holding fast to that connection, then that is your sign that Christ's representatives on earth are affirming what is true in heaven doesn't make it true. Ultimately, you have to stand before the Lord. But isn't it reassuring? Isn't that why Jesus is building his church on earth so that our neighbors and the nations could have that reassurance too? That yes, I genuinely am connected to Christ. And that's why we want to grow the church. That's why we invite people to church. That's why we plant churches. So that more of the, our neighbors, more of the nations can have this assurance that my head is in heaven. My flesh, my own flesh is in heaven. And I am connected to him forever. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks for your salvation, for your words to us, for giving us Jesus, uh, the eternal word, the living word. Uh, and Lord, we, we, we lay ourselves before you and ask for you to have your way with us. Uh, expose what needs to be exposed and correct what needs to be corrected. But, but by all means, do this in such a way that you don't let us forget the promise of the one who came to take our place, to bear our sin and to give us his covering. We thank you for the promise of eternal life because our head is in heaven and we are members of his body. Thank you that we have our own flesh in heaven. In his name we pray.